847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode, I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's career, or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. On this episode, I am joined by a very special guest, the wonderfully innovative composer Grant Fonda. Grant makes Los Angeles his home and has contributed music to various multimedia projects, including uh, notable documentaries such as The Dating Project and the award-winning Down the Fence from 2017. Grant also worked in the music departments for high-profile films Spectre and Bridge of Spies. Today, Grant is graciously taking time to talk about his score for the new documentary entitled The House That Rob Built, which premiered in February of 2021. The House That Rob Built was directed by Jonathan Sapiti and Megan Harrington and focuses on the formation of uh, women's collegiate basketball in the state of Montana, specifically the Lady Grizz basketball team as coached by Rob Selvig. Grant Fonda's music is now available to purchase through the major streaming music services. Oh, and in advance, I want to apologize for any construction noise that might be audible during portions of the interview. Welcome to the show, Grant. Yeah, thank you so much for having me here, Brian. It's great yeah, to be here. I, it's it's fantastic. I'm I am very honored by your presence. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so, um, tell me a little bit about your background, uh, as far as you know, studies or you know your you know your entrance into film music. Uh, I'm just yeah. curious to learn a little bit about about that. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a musical household, so my grandfather was a classically trained pianist, and uh, so I grew up around everything from Bach to, you know, staple repertoires of, of what he was playing for the gig uh, that he was working on for that weekend. That was, he was actually living with us when I was at a very young age because my grand, grandmother had MS, and so um, getting to be able to really be immersed in a really rich musical language from an early age was, I think, invaluable in my growth as a musician and my love for it. Um, and then when I started expressing interest in taking lessons, um, it was really cool because neither my grandfather nor my parents pushed me towards it. They really just let me kind of lead that and i think that was huge because it really cultivated a love for music for music's sake uh started on piano and then started learning clarinet and then french horn and then percussion uh eventually ended up writing and i had always kind of done a little bit of my own writing but it was always informed by what i was practicing as a performance musician um, oh i get that yeah. Yeah. And so, I, I also play clarinet. So I, I'm oh, there you go. on that. Yeah. <laughs> well, my amateur is extremely out of shape. So I will let you have that one. <laughs> I'm sure mine is even worse. So that's great. <laughs> yeah. That, so you have that, that eclecticism sort of of what you were absorbing, what you're performing, having that inform all of your writing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because I didn't actually think that I wanted to be a composer. I thought that I was going to be an animator. Um, and wow. so I, all through grade school, middle school, and then even into high school, I was really trying to immerse myself in the, uh, the visual arts. And because I thought that I always wanted to work for Disney, I'd always wanted to, you know, be able to work as uh, a cell animator and you know looking back at the way the movies that i was raised on as a kid um and that was you know pre-pixar and looking at the the immense amount of hours and and, and hand-drawn effort that went into that and it was really interesting because it struck me when i was babysitting for somebody when i was watching um the Rescuers Down Under, and uh, which is a gorgeous film, and it has a gorgeous score by Bruce Broughton. Yeah, and it struck me all at once, and I don't really know what prompted it. it. Was like, oh, the thing that makes this amazing is the marriage of music and animation. I think that that was really the spark that lit the fire for composing in me. And even then it's, I don't think that I really thought it was gonna be attainable to be a composer for film and TV, um, for media. I just knew that I wanted to write. And I think that I, I saw being a film composer as a pipe dream in many senses. Um, hmm. But it was really cool because there was a marked shift in my thinking about music at that point. And so for the next, gosh, probably 10, 15 years, I really pursued a career as a composer, from an academic standpoint, what we would traditionally associate with, you know, composing in the concert hall or looking at teaching in an academic circuit, but it was always informed by what I felt in that moment when I saw that connection of the rescuers down under of this has to be relatable, it has to draw an audience in. And, uh, you know, whether that means it follows the the rules, so to speak, of academic composition, or it starts to, you know, follow more of the rules of what we see be an exercise in film. Um, and so that was a huge turning point for me. And I think from there, it was it was really cool just to, you know, put one foot in front of the other, went on to get a master's degree, and then uh, was told about the film scoring program at USC by Chris Young, who's an amazing composer in his own oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Chris is awesome. He, Chris is great. Um, and it was so funny because I had never heard of the program at USC prior to meeting Chris. And we met in Poland, of all places. Huh. Um, and I, I master class with Chris and he said, you know, you're really good at this. <laughs> you should apply for this program. And I thought, okay, cool. So as far as the, so this documentary, specifically the house that Rob built, um, which if I'm correct, uh, was just released in February. That's correct. Yeah. Um, so what brought you into the, into the arena for, for documentary scoring and for this? Cause I think you've done other documentaries as well. I have. Okay. Is this with yeah, the, the same sort of group or, or, uh, it's just sort of become your, 
your niche? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's funny. Um, I have laughed with former professors of mine because they said that they thought I was going to be the last person they ever expected to end up doing documentaries. It's my bread and butter. Um, and it's it's been a really great place to live, honestly. And uh, so I, I came to be a part of the team for the house that Rob built because it was my third collaboration with uh, John Sippity and Megan Harrington. Uh, Megan works with Family Theater Productions. Um, John and I were introduced on The Dating Project, uh, which was really the, uh, one of the first big documentaries that I did that got some uh, really significant national attention. And uh, it, it was just a terrific film. And so uh, we worked on The Dating Project and then John and I, um, and Megan brought me back on to score Prey, the story of Patrick Payton, um, which released last year and actually qualified for an Oscar um, this year. They were hoping to make the shortlist. It didn't make the shortlist, but it was still an amazing experience to walk through that process. And then um, John and I worked on a couple projects in between and then got the call for the house that Rob built, which is really cool because it's a, a gorgeous film that even though it's been produced by Family Theater Productions, it's which produced the Dating Project and Prey, which were faith-based productions. The House of Rob Build is not faith-based at all. And so looking and seeing how do we tell the story for the story's sake, uh, it was really, really delightful to be a part of. Yeah, and it seems like a fantastic story. Um, correct me if I'm wrong in terms of it's it's Montana uh, set story of uh, the women's uh, basketball team. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. So, you know, speaking of like the this film specifically, like um, I guess what aspects of the story and its characters um, were you most trying to capture in your music? Um, mm. And was it by way of a recurring theme or just particular colors? Yeah, uh, actually both of those. Uh, so we, John is a big believer, the director is a big believer in um, there being a theme that you can hang your hat on, especially in the documentary world, which is a little bit more of an unconventional thought process because documentaries tend to be filled with scores that just kind of move your way through the picture. Um, but John has really always been a big believer in having a theme that connects with the, the main character or the main heart of the story. Um, and so um, we uh, talked a lot about what that would be. And it was interesting because with the house that Rob built, there was the obvious character of Rob Selvig, who's this legendary coach, but then there's maybe the less obvious characters of both the team itself, but then of Montana. Um, and, and so as we started talking about that, we realized that we really probably needed to have something that, touched all three of those entities. And so the main theme that we hear throughout the film um, is actually, it goes back and forth between being identified with Rob and also with, with the team itself. And that was really intentional in our discussions because even though it's, the title of the film is The House That Rob Built, we've talked a lot and we were working on it about it's the house that Rob built. Like it's not as much about Rob. Sometimes it's about Rob and his legacy that he's creating, but mm. sometimes the story is more about the house that he created and the entity of his team. And so having a theme that could go back and forth between the two in the way that was presented through orchestration changes, um, 
was was really cool. Um, and then the other two pieces that you mentioned, you know, texture really kind of served the idea of legacy and mm-hmm. Rob's legacy, and then uh, the the landscape of Montana as well. Yeah, and it was one of the things that you know, in some of those cues, there's sort of a rustic or or you know sort sort of a rustic feel to the instrumentation and um by you know use of fiddle or you know kick drum or something like that to, to sort of give it that that rustic feel yeah. um but it's also interesting in in a cue uh that you have called uh wins and losses mm-hmm. um that it's heavy on strings it almost has like a vivaldi type of yeah Vivaldi was actually a really big influence uh, in in the thought process behind writing because one thing that had always struck me about Vivaldi specifically was the energy and almost this raw sense of energy that we get in his writing. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, you think about musicology and the history that was behind it. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but I thought it could be really interesting to try to bring some a flavor of that to the score because when you see these girls play and it actually comes up in the film they say we play the most intense basketball you've ever seen and i thought well how do we do that in a way that feels elegant on some level um but still very raw in some sense and so that's so interesting yeah and and elegant and aggressive yes yeah (laughs) and so it's actually really cool you mentioned strings we decided to approach the whole score with a small ensemble rather than a very large ensemble and and that was really intentional on uh, you know my part, but I think that um, John, the director, really led the charge on that because he wanted the, everything to feel very tangible. And even as the the story of this legacy and the team grew, he wanted to feel like you were almost sitting on the very very front row of the stadium hmm. and watching or um, or the arena, I guess, and watching hmm. the game played on the court. Which and that also kind of leads me to that the, the next you know topic of instrumentation choices you know going from acoustic to electronic but like the feeling of being you know at you know front and center or, or you know courtside um, mm-hmm. is that in a cue like Title Nine uh, I believe that's the correct uh, you're actually incorporating like sound effects basically of a basketball court into the yeah. music yeah. So yeah anything you can share about that the thought process behind that. That was, I think, probably the biggest risk that I took. Um, and, and I knew it was going to be an interesting sell because I had this idea that um, from conversations early on with John, that there wasn't going to be a, a lot of sound design in the film, partially because it was a documentary, but also because a lot of the footage that's in the film is archival footage. And so the sound isn't great. And so they're pulling from these things. But even the, the reenactments that you see that come up throughout the film are usually underlined by a voiceover um, from somebody. And so there wasn't a lot of room for that. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if we could take some of what we would normally do with sound design with a sports film mm-hmm. and actually incorporate that in the score and to some extent blur those lines be- between sound design and score. And so we <laughs> actually recorded basketballs and swooshes and sneakers and and getting to to figure out how to incorporate those in a way where it 
almost felt like you were hearing it in the distance while you were seeing some of these scenes played out but then they start to kind of fit hand in glove with the musicality of what was going on underneath well, it, it reminded me, too, uh, of, of two particular composers. One, uh, Chris Young, you had mentioned. Mm, he yeah. did a score, you know, decades ago called The Vagrant. Yeah, it's a great and, score. And yeah. he used, like, typewriter, yep. hand lids, and he was trying to, it was like, what's, what is everything in this in this person's shopping cart? And I'm going to use yep. that in the score with strings. Um, yes. And then the other thing it reminded me was um, Jerry Goldsmith's score for Hoosiers, where mm. he has, like, a synth drum but it sounds like a dribbling basketball yes yeah yeah it, you know it's funny hoosiers actually didn't come up when we were talking about this film um but that's a that's a great reference and i think any <laughs> any association with jerry is amazing um yeah but yeah both of those guys are are great and i think that was something that actually did come up in conversation is how do we take something that's so obvious with basketball and something that is so commonplace nowadays with the documentary and create a score for it that feels really unique to the story of this team and Robin Selvig and Montana, but present it in such a way that doesn't feel like we've heard it before. Um, yeah. So that's kind of how we ended up with the soundscape that we have. Yeah. It's, it's very diverse. And, but that also kind of to, to the question of like documentary versus fiction. Um, one, one of the you know questions I had was like, what to you are the differences in scoring a documentary versus a fictional narrative mm. like i think for some documentaries that does tend to be more textural than thematic mm. um so you know are there struggles for you or do you sort of see them as separate you know categories of, of scoring documentary versus fictional narrative i actually don't see them as separate categories and i i think a lot of that has been because i've been really fortunate to work with directors and documentary who want the heart of the documentary to come out and not just get information out there and um and so in many ways, the way that it's spotted, the way that it's composed, the way that's recorded, even we treat like we're treating um, a narrative uh, or a fictional narrative. And, okay. um, and it's been really cool because I think maybe there's all oh, the biggest difference that I could think of is that documentaries tend to feel like they move a lot quicker than a narrative film in that sense. And so um, I think at least my work personally on documentaries tends to be uh, feel like there's almost this undulating motion that kind of runs throughout and it, okay. it it's been cool because with specifically working with John and Megan on this film um, the times where that motion stops is always intentional because it it brings us to a point narratively that is either intended to cause you to stop and take notice of what's going on or to sock you in the gut emotions yeah. but you don't feel like you're receiving information at that point, but you're actually experiencing what's going on with whoever's talking or what they're remembering. Yeah, there's actually a moment um, that comes late in the film and we went back and forth um, actually for a couple of days on how to treat it uh, with spotting because it's it's this devastating moment um, where, it, well, it's, it seems devastating in the way that it's presented, but it's part of history and uh, we're talking about what it's like to experience a loss when you've mm -hmm. achieved this level of greatness. And 
we thought, well, it's it's retrospective, so maybe we just push through it. But um, what we finally ended up deciding to do was to actually cut score entirely. And it's in the middle of this really long sequence on mm. both ends of music. And so by pulling it out entirely, it feels very intimate and like as if you were you're just sitting there with the person on camera like in in this big empty space and there's nothing and so it feels like you feel the weight of the loss as opposed to trying to treat it with a sense of melancholy um wow. and, and it was it was great great direction uh for that, me amazing i mean it's like you have to be sensitive to every moment of right. the film right absolutely right Was there any, you know, this is something I hadn't really thought of until really kind of going into documentary work, like with fictional films, with narrative films, there's temp tracks, right. you know, placed throughout the film. And I never even, I was was thinking about, just do documentaries do the same process? Like, mm -hmm. was this something that was temp tracked um, to help guide you? Yeah, there was a temp score. Um, and it's funny because this was our third collaboration together as a team. Um, <laughs> the score was the first time um, in in this specific you know team as since we're talking about sports where a lot of the temp was my music from previous films wow. <laughs> and so it was a little unnerving going into it because it was like gosh that worked so well previously so hey how do you do that? and then I think especially as a composer you have a pre-associated scene associated with it and we all do you know whether it's temp with Jerry Goldsmith or Thomas Newman uh, and it, you know, you think, oh, that's that's from, um, you know, Road to Perdition. Um, but when you right. hear it with your own work, it's like I remember what I was thinking of when I scored that specific cue on a previous film. And so that was a really interesting thing, because throughout the spotting session, the note that I kept getting was, okay, now we know that this was used in in the dating project. We know that this was used in Prey, but don't think about that. Just think about the mood that's going on here. And so having to make a mental shift was really wild. Um, but then the other note that I kept getting from the temp on this documentary was that it was just too plucky and, um, huh. and so trying to discern what that meant musically and emotionally was interesting. And so that's how we ended up with a lot more of the resonant and, uh, and ambient textures in the film is to kind of give us a sense of space and warmth, uh, that was missing. Uh, there was actually a lot of banjo in the temp, if I remember correctly, banjo and mandolin, because they wanted to capture some of that earthy sense that you get from Montana. And, yeah. and so trying to figure out how to get away from that was interesting because those are obvious associations with those instruments. Yeah. Uh, but trying to figure out how to present that material in a unique way that didn't feel campy was a challenge. You know, the strings, ended up serving most of our palette. Um, but then I think the three instruments that really brought that grit is was actually what John and I and Megan and I have talked a lot about, uh, what were the voice um, and then the felted piano. And we, uh, you know, we really dug for that close approach on the felt piano and then the nickel harpa, which is kind of an unusual instrument. And that's where we get those fiddle huh. kind of sounds. And the cool things um, 
you know, the voice is the female voice, obvious association with the women's basketball team, um, but approaching vocal textures in a sense that felt very up close and personal. Um, and then with nickel harpa, the coolest thing about that instrument is that you can actually hear all of the keys switching. Um, and one of the things I love about working with my engineer, Scott Frankfurt, is that he goes for the character and the tone of that instrument. And and a lot of times when we hear nickel harpa, we hear it mic'd from a distance. And so you get its really lush and warm, resonant kind of signature sound that is it's known for. But when you push in close and you're getting a, a distant capture and a close mic capture, you're hearing all of those keys change on the strings. And so it feels a lot more, um, you know, gritty, like you were talking about, and, and, uh, and earthy. Um, and so, which is where you get a lot from the banjo and the mandolin is you're actually hearing strings change and the sound of the body. So it's kind of a cool experience. And I, I'll never forget when we were in studio and we heard it for the first time, everyone was like, that's so cool. Like it's it's just way better than what it was in mock-ups and as it always is. But that was a really special moment. I think there was also an interesting cue. I'm trying to remember, I, I had the title written down. It's, uh, it's Psycho, oh shoot, Psycho Killer? Psycho Coach. Psycho Coach, I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> where it almost has like this, it's like a nine inch nails kind of yeah. uh, harshness to it. Yeah, yeah, that was, um, I think the direction, I have to go back and look at my notes, but if I remember it, the direction I got on that was basically, it needs to feel like an out of control video game. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> And so it was really tricky because the thing that we went back and forth on that is like, how far do we deviate from the sound of the rest of the score? And, and then how much do we still keep it intact? Because the reality is it's, it's another um, section of Rob's character that we see. It's like, you know, another layers peeled back and we get to see what, who he was like on, um, on the courts. And so what we ended up with was a lot of almost, you know, these, these bit sort of synth sounds uh, married with the rest of the traditional palette that we've been working with. And so you get like this, this really gnarly, visceral and almost obnoxious kind of a cue, but somehow it, I hope, you know, still lives within the context of everything else that's gone on in the soundtrack. Yeah, it was unexpected, but it was pretty neat. I think you got <laughs> goal achieved. Great. Yeah, awesome. <laughs>
tell me a little bit uh, uh, just to step back for a second the production side of, of the score uh, yeah. for the for the house that Rob built um, recorded uh, how, I guess when did, was it recorded and how did you handle you know um, live musicians versus electronic things like that yeah so I, was, uh, I realized this week actually that the first sketch for that film uh, was written on August 21st and then the score for the film was written on or recorded on September 11th. So it was a really, really insane turnaround. Um, and that actually informed the way that we recorded. So we recorded here in Los Angeles um, at, uh, at Scott Frankfurt studio. And there were a couple of reasons. One, we knew that it was gonna fit the aesthetic of the film, but um, it's also a really intimate and wonderful recording space. And so we thought, especially for getting the tones and the emotional vibe across the musicians that was going to be really helpful but also knowing with turnaround time being able to be local rather than having to either fly to nashville or go to london or something it made more sense um, and this was pre-2020 pre was yes yeah so this was 2019 i believe thank goodness um, yes <laughs> yeah but yeah choosing um, to record, you know, strings in, in conjunction with the synths. Again, that a lot of, some of that is, is my own preference as a composer is believing that when you bring in a musician to record something, it, it ups the level of emotional investment for the, the viewer, mm -hmm. um, because it's somebody bringing their own set of emotion to the recording process. Um, but I, it's actually a big part of the team's mindset for the way that we approach the score to the from day one they said we have to record with real guys on this uh which is not something we hear all the time and, yeah and it was great yeah. because they knew that it was going to take things to a new level there's also the the cue um called strong which i wanted to, to yeah. point I, I wanted to kind of highlight because it's the longest cue of the score it is um i think it's like nine minutes yep um and yep. what was your goal was for, for the architecture of that cue like how difficult was that a sequence to yeah. score um it was really challenging and yeah, for a couple of reasons um the that cue was interesting because that was the first footage from the film that I had ever actually seen. It was one of the last things that I scored. So that film or that sequence in the film starts with what was actually one of the first things shot in the film as well, which is interesting because it was the end of Rob's career. And so Megan Harrington, who one of the co-directors, actually played for Rob Selvig as a part of the Lady Grizz. And they knew that there was this uh, reunion that they were having this party. And she thought, if we're ever going to make a movie about Rob Selvig, this has to be in it. And so they went and shot it before everything was completely funded. And I, they called me and said, hey, we're doing this. We just kind of want it to be on your radar. And uh, John hopped on a call with me and kind of gave me the emotional impact that was there. And so it's tricky because it's this, actually, I get choked up thinking about it. It's this really emotional scene because you see all these women who have played played for Rob from his earliest team to some of the gals who played with him right when he retired, gathered together in this room, just basically celebrating the impact that he had on their lives. And then Rob gets up and delivers this speech that just socks you in the gut. Um, and so starting there, 
and then moving into a montage with all these women talking about who they've become beyond the basketball court and then moving into the the story of of where the team is at now and where it's going it was really tricky because you there was this really really broad sense of emotions that took place but then it also directly addressed issues of female empowerment and how Rob kind of overcame the issues that came with Title IX um, and and trying to do that over the course of nine minutes. It wasn't like, okay, let's do this over you know, two and a half minute span, but let's stretch it out, keep it emotional, keep the viewer engaged, which is so important because it's the very last moments in the film. And so it's it really- it's, Yeah, it's like a mini movie on its own. It really was in many ways, yeah. You know, sometimes in, in film, and I think especially in documentaries, when you take a swing at something, you just, you know when most of it's right. And so I had a really strong sense when I sent that off to um, the team for review that there probably weren't going to be a lot of notes on it. And um, I went back and looked at my notes and the the first comment I got back was in a text thread. It was just tears emojis. I was like, hey, <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> think as far because you know you've had you know um focus you know musical focuses outside of scoring for media mm -hmm. what do you feel are advantages and disadvantages in scoring for for media as opposed to just like um you know pure or you know concert music or something yeah um that's a, man that's a great question i the thing i love about working in media is that the music is always serving something else and it's always collaborative and and for me it always you know gives something to stand on and um i tell younger composers who've studied with me or have come and asked for questions that you it's great because music for media gets to help tell stories for humans that are made about humans by humans um, and so it's just like this really great reminder that everything we do is getting an audience but it's being created with other people and other artists um, and i think you know music in the concert hall is amazing in its own right but whereas a lot of times we watch a composer emerge from time writing with this masterpiece that we get to then listen to, film is so cool and special in its own unique ways because you get to really watch the you know the labors of so many hands come together to tell a singular story. And, and when you think about the collaborative energy that's a part of that is really pretty remarkable. Um, and so every, I think every project I work on being able to think about the synergy that's there is, is really humbling and it's a pretty amazing privilege. One last question, uh, before I, as I, I had to write it down just before, before we started, because yeah. uh, I was looking at your bio and it, it, it was something where I think you had worked with James Horner on Titanic live. Is that correct? Yeah. So I was brought in, um, by Jack Redford, uh, who is, uh, James, lead orchestrator for a really long time mm -hmm. uh, and um, I wasn't told what the project was I was just told that 
there was an opportunity wanted to know if I was going to be available for, I think, three months. <laughs> well, wow. okay. Well, when Jack calls, you say, yeah. And, <laughs> and since we got into it, I, I got the first cue and um, it was, I believe it was actually hard to starboard and which it was so cool because that was one of the cues for me growing up that was like, that is an amazing piece of film music yeah. and music in its own right, but then even the way it works to picture. And so uh, my role in that process was working you know, with music preparation and kind of doing reverse orchestration in many senses, because we were trying to take the way that the film had been music edited and then retranslate that for live performance as it yeah. names live to picture. That's tough. Cause again, I, I mean, with, with some of the live performances that I've seen at the Hollywood bowl, it's like, I know what cues actually were edited in right. post. And now right. they've got to reorchestrate that to actually be played live. Yes. That's tough. Yeah. Yeah. It was really interesting, but man, what an immense privilege and uh, getting to, you know, see some of the things that were still in James original hand uh, and pulling from those, those orchestrations mm -hmm. and pulling from things that were prepped for the studio. Um, it was, it was an amazing process, especially I think, you know, when I was just starting my career, getting to watch how his musical thought process worked was, yeah. was pretty cool. Oh, that's so great. That's just so cool that you got to have that opportunity, you know, yeah. kind of get your hands into his music. Yes. Yeah. Once in a <laughs> lifetime. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah. I just as a, as a James Horner fan, I had to ask about that. Yep. No one can, no one can do melody like James Horner. That's for sure. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's they're indelible. I thank you so much for, for answering my questions on, on this. This, this was fantastic Absolutely. to learn, you know, more about to have you on and, and to learn more about the house that Rob built as, and also your music for it. So I really thank you for, for the time. Hey, Brian, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Great questions. And it's fun to be able to relive some of the process and get to talk about it now that it's out and uh, score releases on Friday, which is kind of fun. Oh, oh, that's right. Thank you very much for pointing that out. Absolutely. I, yeah, I was fantastic. Yeah, I'm so glad it's out there for people to enjoy and listen to. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Grant. Yeah, absolutely. Grant Fonda's upcoming projects include a two-part documentary called Birth Gap and Childless World, respectively, focusing on the topic of population decline, as well as the romantic comedy titled Dating in New York, written and directed by Jonah Feingold. This concludes my conversation with composer Grant Fonda. I'd like to again thank Grant for spending time today to talk with me about his latest project, the documentary The House That Rob Built. Both the film and its music are now available on the major streaming platforms, and Grant's music is also available for purchase online as well. I want to thank everyone for listening today. As always, I hope you found the discussion both engaging and entertaining. Music heard in today's episode included excerpts from The House That Rob Built, composed and conducted by Grant Fonda. Also an excerpt from The Rescuers Down Under, composed by Bruce Broughton. If you'd like to send any comments or questions, you can email the show at escortasettlepodcast at gmail.com, find the blog at escortasettle.blogspot.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash and on Twitter at Score2SettlePod. That's Score, the number two, Settle Pod. If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and a review. That's always appreciated. And of course, the podcast is available to listen to on Spotify. Thanks again for listening. Listening.